Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ballots have already started to go out all across the country. I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome back to Deconstructed. I spent years covering midterm elections, but this one is shaping up to be one of the most difficult to predict. My first cycle as a reporter was 2006, and it was clear for months ahead of time that Democrats were going to have an extremely good year. The only question was how good. The same was true in 2008, and then the reverse was true for Republicans in 2010. Now, 2014 was an ugly year for Democrats. The economic recovery was slow because the stimulus back in 2009 had been way too skimpy, and it was followed by a bunch of deficit deals with Mitch McConnell that slowed it further. Then there was ISIS sweeping across Syria and Iraq and Ebola showing up in Texas. Losing the Senate that year changed American history because it meant Obama couldn't confirm a replacement for Antonin Scalia, and the specter of the open Supreme Court seat drove Republican turnout in 2016, which may in itself have been enough to elect Donald Trump. It was also clear pretty early that 2018 would be a giant midterm year for Democrats. Now, the 2020 congressional races, though, were harder to call. Democrats significantly underperformed expectations in the House, losing basically every competitive race to Republicans and barely hanging on to control of the lower chamber. In the Senate, Democratic hopes were dashed in Iowa and Maine by bad candidates and in North Carolina by some idiotic philandering. But Georgia's Senate runoffs were the equivalent of Democrats catching a straight flush on the river. Heading into 2022, Democrats were most worried about holding Raphael Warnock's seat in Georgia, Maggie Hassan's seat in New Hampshire, and Mark Kelly's in Arizona. But Republicans nominated a nutty candidate in New Hampshire, and polls now have Hassan strongly ahead. Mark Kelly is also looking good, though billionaire Peter Thiel this week said he's pumping in more money for Blake Masters, the Republican nominee there. Still, Kelly doesn't lack for money, and there's only so much that you can spend in a single state. 538's polling average has Warnock up by four points over Georgia football star Herschel Walker. In a minute, we'll be joined by George Cheedy, a Georgia-based contributor to The Intercept, to talk about that race and all things Georgia. If you missed his December 2020 appearance here on the podcast, it's worth going back and listening. It's among the ones I've gotten the most amount of positive feedback from listeners on. We talk about the long political history of Georgia dating back to its unlikely founding as an anti-slavery state meant to be a colonial buffer between the slave colony of South Carolina and the Spanish-controlled territory of Florida, which kept sending raiding parties up north to free slaves. In any event, some of the Senate races that had been on the periphery have since moved to the center of the fight. Congressman Tim Ryan is running a stunningly close race in Ohio against another Teal protege, J.D. Vance. 538 has it dead even. At a recent debate, Ryan pounded Vance on abortion. If you get raped, J.D. Vance and others are going to say you have to have that baby. State-mandated pregnancies for a rape victim? That is so far out of the mainstream, it's not even funny. And for being a suck-up to Donald Trump. Just a few weeks ago in, in Youngstown, on the stage, Donald Trump said to J.D. Vance... All you do is kiss my ass to get my support. He said that. This cycle, there isn't a whole lot of confidence among pundits in Washington about how this election is going to go. That's true nationally, but for Ryan to win in Ohio, it will require everything pundits think they know about partisan polarization to be wrong. And for a massive surge of women, young people, and frankly, all people angry about the overturning of Roe v. Wade to come to the polls. And it'll mean a significant number of Republicans switching to back a Democrat but it's not impossible. The other wild one is in Utah, where independent Evan McMullen has a real shot of beating Republican Mike Lee. The race is so close that Lee went on Tucker Carlson's show this week to beg, literally beg, Mitt Romney to endorse him. I, I, I'm asking him right here again tonight, right now. Mitt, if you'd like to protect the Republican majority, give us any chance of seizing the Republican majority once again, getting it away from the Democrats who are facilitating this massive spending spree in a massive inflationary binge. Please get on board. Help me win re-election. The other state that has moved to the center of the conversation is Nevada. Democrats knew Catherine Cortez Masta would face a tough race there. But there's now genuine fear that while the party might do well elsewhere, they could still lose Nevada and lose the Senate. 
Republicans there and in Georgia are hammering Democrats over inflation and the economy. This week, we got more bad news on inflation, which is still higher than the Fed wants to see, which means they're likely to keep pushing up rates and causing havoc in the markets. It's also being turned into fodder for GOP ads around the country, and in particular in Georgia and Nevada. Today, we're going to take a close look at both of those states with John Ralston, reporter and founder of the Nevada Independent, and George Cheedy. First, here's John Ralston. John Ralston, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. No, it's a it's a real pleasure to have you here. John is one of the is the probably the greatest Nevada reporter in several generations. Now the CEO of the Nevada Independent, the Indy. And so nobody better to tell us what the heck is going on in this Senate race. Really glad you could join us. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for those kind words, Ryan. And so you know, people, people in Washington were watching the Nevada Senate race, but it wasn't kind of in the top five. It's, it's quickly surging up to one of the biggest concerns among Democrats. So what happened? First of all, I mean, how is how's Nevada doing? How did Nevada do during... COVID and how's the recovery been? Well, let me answer the second question first. Uh, I mean, Nevada got crushed by COVID for all the reasons you would think. We're kind of still a, a one-trick pony here, one one industry essentially. And during COVID, people were not traveling, were not coming. The casinos were shut down. Uh, it was one of the eeriest things in all of my 38 years here, Ryan, to see like nobody on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, and so a lot of people lost their jobs and uh, a lot of those jobs have come back. Uh, and the economy is doing much better, but there's still people who are hurting and there were all kinds of problems with people getting unemployment checks because that system collapsed under the weight of the, of the inundation of claims. But uh, it, it's, doing, it's doing better for sure. Um, and the governor who was running for re-election as well is certainly making uh, everything seem like a rosy scenario at this point for, for, for obvious reasons. Uh, I am not sure except uh, for the national media continuing to not take Nevada as seriously as I take Nevada, <laughs> that, that they didn't see that this Senate race was going to be close. It's an off year. The atmospherics are terrible for Democrats here as they are in many states. We're a purple state. Democrats have lost some off of their lead, their registration lead to Republicans that they've had in the past. And the Democratic Party here could not be used as essentially a vessel uh, for what I used to call a legalized money laundering operation for the Reed team in which they would funnel a lot of money through there to, you know, they can get around certain uh, um, contribution limits by using the party, register voters and turn them out. They, they couldn't do that because the party was taken over from them and so they pulled all the money out and they set up a parallel organization, but it, it, you can't do it with the same kind of efficiency and so that has slowed them down. So this race was always going to be close. And I think it's a microcosm of problems for Democrats in, in, in the sense that, you know, Adam Laxalt, who was a Republican candidate, in my opinion, is as bad a candidate as Oz and Herschel Walker and Blake Masters. Hmm. It's just that they've cocooned him better. He's a favorite of McConnell and Trump uh, because they know how important Nevada is. And you have a Democratic senator who is not that high profile, who is much more of a workhorse than a show horse, as I've said. And so you have all the ingredients there uh, for, for a close race. So it's always, I always thought it was going to be close. So let me, let me take these one by one. So is there a relationship, or what is the relationship between COVID, the economic collapse, and this Senate race? Who, who took the blame for the, besides the pandemic itself for the economy collapsing? Well, generally, that has been much more of a focus on the governor, uh, Steve Sisolak, who, who made some decisions to, to close casinos, as I mentioned, lockdowns, closing schools. And so he has, he has borne the brunt of that. The main campaign issue that the Republicans are using against Cortez Masto, there are several, but the main one they're using is just tying her to Biden uh, and and Biden's numbers here and inflation and mm -hmm. gas prices. They're not. They don't talk about the COVID economy or or, or or holding her responsible for any of those policies. It's all about what's going on now. I've seen that a lot of his ads seem to be yeah around inflation. Like, what are you seeing on on television? And what are the ones that are resonating? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Listen, um, again, one of the ironic things here, talking about what a disciplined 
candidate she is, and she's her media has been very, very sharp. Uh, Laxalt's ca campaign has not been nearly as good. He's not a good candidate, and yet he's in the game because all they'll do in almost every uh, uh, public appearance that he makes or when he goes on one of these friendly uh, shows, either talk radio or Newsmax or Fox or something like that, is just talk about Biden, Cortez, Masto. It's all in one breath. Right, he's completely tying her to the to the Biden administration, and almost every ad is some variant of that. They've done a few localized kinds of things. Her record as Attorney General versus his record as Attorney General, uh, he succeeded her, but generally it's it's inflation, gas prices, uh, and Biden Cortez Masto. Hey, you also mentioned the the Reed machine kind of losing control of the National Party to the the, the Bernie crat crowd over there, uh, but. They they were able to pull the mo pull the money out and where they move it Washoe County like they they're running the machine out of a different area so what is the can you explain what what makes that more difficult is it like why can't they just replicate their machine given that they still have the same kind of people and they still have the same fundraising capacity and they and they took their money well uh, besides slightly different rules for the organization they set up and the party. There is a person who's missing this time, uh, yes. and that is the late Harry Reid, who used to raise, you know, millions upon millions. He could raise unlimited amounts of money. Mm -hmm. uh, that he's not around anymore now. They still raised a fair amount of money, but the atmospherics in the state and the fact that uh, there's been this surge in independent registration here, Ryan, for, for uh, uh, mostly because of a, a DMV motor voter law that defaults people to Indy, uh, it's, it's changed the dynamics of the state and made things a lot more uh, uncertain. And by this time in most cycles, even midterms, the Democrats are showing a surge in registration and pulling away from uh, the Republicans. And the way that most elections work in Nevada for the last several cycles, as you know, is that two-thirds of the people here vote early and the Democrats bank all these votes with their, with their base in Clark County, Las Vegas, which is, has 70% of the vote. So it doesn't matter much what happens on election day. The election is essentially over. I don't think that's going to be the case this time, although we'll find out when early voting starts a week from Saturday. You see a lot of talk about the Hispanic vote in, in Nevada. What is the breakdown of the Nevada Hispanic community, both ethnically and, and kind of politically, uh, how does Cortez Masto fit in there, who's described as the first Latina senator um, from from Nevada? And how is Laxalt doing with the Hispanic vote? Which which Hispanic voters are, are is he appealing to? So um, overwhelmingly, the population here, uh, uh, Hispanic population, is Mexican. There are smaller subgroups. There there is there is a significant, although I wouldn't say sizable, Cuban population uh, as well. There they tend to be a little bit more conservative, but it's almost all Mexicans, and she is of Mexican heritage. Her dad is of Mexican heritage, as you mentioned, the first Latina ever elected to the Senate. Now, the Hispanic vote here, there is evidence in polling, has pulled away from the Democrats here as well. Clearly, the Republicans, including Laxalt, see an opportunity here. And the Club for Growth, which uh, has a ton of money, is a Republican-aligned pack, just bought $2 million on Spanish-language uh, TV and radio. I've never seen that happen here, uh, Ryan. You have seen candidates, for instance, when Cortez Masto first ran against a much better candidate, a congressman by the name of Joe Heck in 2016, Heck bought some Spanish-language media, but not at the levels. Uh, it was more of a sop back then than anything else, I thought. But the levels that they're buying now shows that they clearly see an opportunity. They're not going to win the Hispanic vote. I mean, if they did, uh, then we, we shouldn't even be talking here because mm -hmm. the race would already be over. But they, they think they can cut in to the Democratic margins. I will say that I've not seen a poll. And, you know, in polling, these subgroups like Hispanics, can, there's a large margin of error. But I have not seen any poll where Cortez Masto, the first Latina, only Latina in the U.S. Senate, is crushing Laxalt. I mean, she may be winning by sizable margins, but in many of these polls, Ryan, she's not even at 50%. Their hope mm -hmm. is that in general in Nevada that they will decide late, that the undecideds will coalesce uh, behind her. And I think they're going to start making more overt pitches to the Hispanic community as, as the weeks uh, go on here. Are Democrats spending heavily on Spanish media? They are. 
They are. Um, but, you know, the Club for Growth has a lot of money, and they have come in here and changed elections before, generally in the primary. They spent... In the Senate race, you may remember back in 2010 uh, when Sharon Angle was trying to beat Harry Reid and, and not to much avail because she was she had said all kinds of intemperate right. things. And so, uh, you know, Adam Laxalt's a bad candidate and, and, and he said some dumb things, but they have kept it to a minimum because they've cocooned him essentially from any hard questions. Yeah. So, so Democrats' response here has been to sort of lump Laxalt in with Trump here, uh, try to make this a, a Trump referendum, which gives me flashbacks to Youngkin in Virginia, which did not work. He's now Governor Glenn Youngkin. But so what, what's what's that move look like out there? Well, uh, the difference I would suggest between Youngkin and, and Laxalt is Youngkin did a fairly skillful job, I think you'll agree, in threading that needle and keeping mm-hmm. Trump at arm's length while not really telling the base that he was keeping Trump at, at arm's length. Laxalt has fully embraced Trump. Trump was here just a few days ago doing a rally uh, for, for, for Laxalt. And uh, Laxalt not only was the face of the big lie for Trump here in 2020, but he has made all kinds of comments about the 2022 election, essentially saying uh, he's going to file lawsuits early so, so he can make the race closer. I mean, he said it, that's almost a, a verbatim quote uh, from him. And he has, he has only recently uh, just straight out said that Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States. And so he's tried to have that a little bit both ways. But the Democrats have started running ads about, about Laxalt and the big lie and the insurrection and tying him to January 6th. Uh, they believe, uh, based on their internal polling, that this is an issue that is going to cut him and drive perhaps um, uh, less than inveterate voters to the polls. Uh, I don't know if that's right or not. I don't know about you, Ryan, but I've been, I'm constantly frustrated by people who, do, who are not taking this whole thing as seriously as they should be. And I understand people are more worried about paying $6 a gallon for gas or how high it, it is to buy bread in a grocery store. But uh, considering how dangerous all of this is, I didn't think people cared about it enough. The Democrats seem to think uh, that they they can drive some turnout with it. How are gas prices, by the way, since, since you mentioned it, out in Nevada? Well, they've come down a little bit, but they're still very high. And, and last I looked, and I haven't looked in a few days, we were in the top three or four in the nation. So it's a real issue here. What about, so Paul, tell us about Paul Laxalt. This is Adam's grandfather, kind of a titan of Nevada old school politics. Who was he and what does it tell us about like kind of re- the Republican Party there that you've gone from him to his grandson here? Well, this is just such such an easy one for me to say this is not your grandfather's Republican Party uh, <laughs> any anymore. Uh, Paul Laxalt was a legend uh, here, a uh, best friend of Ronald Reagan, briefly considered running uh, for president, was a governor and a senator, just an absolutely beloved figure in the state. And Adam Laxalt is his grandson, and he is the illegitimate son of Pete Domenici, the former uh, Republican senator as well. He was raised in Washington, D.C. by his single mother. Paul Laxalt had a relationship with him. Uh, Apparently, he only moved back to the state, Adam Laxalt, did to run for office almost as soon as he got here about a decade uh, ago, but uh, Adam Laxalt is nothing like his 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 grandfather. In fact, many members of the Laxalt clan came out strongly against him when he ran for governor in 2018, and that's going to happen again uh, in in this race. I'm told. How badly did he lose the 2018 race? It was four or five points. I think about 40,000 votes, something like that. And that was a good year for Democrats and nationally, but also in in, in Nevada. Um, what do you think has to happen between now and Election Day for, for Democrats to feel comfortable uh, in this race? And do you think that the Republican optimism is well-founded? Uh, I do think the Republican optimism is well-founded in the second week of October. I, I don't, I don't, there's so many wild cards out there. Uh, we talked about some of them. Will the Hispanic vote coalesce behind Democrats? If it doesn't, that's a big problem for them. Will uh, abortion, which Catherine Cortez Masto has used a lot, actually drive people to, to the polls who weren't otherwise going to vote uh, for her? The culinary union, which we haven't talked about, which is the, by far the biggest union in Nevada, uh, it represents a bunch of casino workers, as you know, Ryan's about 50 or 60,000 members. Uh, that is the Hispanic 
turnout machine as well, worked in concert with the Reed machine through several cycles. About half of the Culinary Union's members are Hispanic, a little bit more. They say they're doing more, touching more doors, driving more voters, registering more voters than they ever have in the past. Uh, now, this kind, this kind of bragging happens a lot, right, to, as, a, as elections near, but they seem, from people I've talked to, they seem to be very serious that they can uh, uh, make up for, for whatever the Reed machine has not been able to do and get Democrats to the polls. They're going, they're going to need to, uh, I, I, I think. Uh, all of the signs here point to the Republicans doing pretty well, including the Democrats, who have had 5 or 6 percent uh, uh, registration leads statewide, Ryan, now have under 3%. And Biden didn't, buy, didn't win that by that much here, uh, as you know. And so they, they have very little margin for error this time. And also, of course, control of the House of Representatives is up for grabs. What's, what's Nevada's contribution going to be to that? Well, we're going to have a huge say in that, uh, bigger again. Uh, and I know I'm a Nevada partisan, but three of our four House races are in play. Uh, that was changed by a reapportionment, which the Democrats controlled, but they wanted to shore up a couple of uh, districts uh, uh, held by Susie Lee and Stephen Horsford, and they took a lot of Democrats from Dina Titus's district, and she was very upset about that. Um, ordinarily, these districts should be relatively safe. They're they're uh, plus seven Biden districts at least, and larger than that in, in in registration edges. But all of the polling that I know about shows those races close and and all three could lose uh, all three could win i would not be surprised by by uh, either of those outcomes or two and one uh ryan but mm-hmm. those races are all in play and they're on every list that you'll see of house races in play so nevada could decide both the house and the senate it sounds like shout that from the rooftops yes we matter yes <laughs> yes the nevada nevada matters that's right that's right the nevada independent what's the what's the website the url NevadaIndependent.com. It's it's a nonprofit website. Very proud of it. Started five and a half years ago. We're still alive, going strong. Still great reporting. It's always my go-to for for Nevada. Thank you. Well, John, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate you having me on, Ryan. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was John Ralston. Turning now to Georgia, George Cheedy is an Atlanta-area-based writer and a regular contributor to The Intercept. George, welcome back to Deconstructed. Happy to be here, and good timing. Yeah, so George was last here uh, on, uh, I was just looking this up, December 4th, 2020. So go check out his episode, uh, which is called A Political History of Georgia. This was a a run-up to the Georgia Senate runoffs, uh, or the Georgia elections, Georgia Senate runoffs. George, did you call those races? I haven't gone back and listened. Oh, goodness. Um, I don't recall. I haven't gone back and listened either. I, I, <laughs> I need to do that now. Let's say you did. Let's say you nailed it. Okay, let's say we nailed it. Well, look, I probably would have said that it was Warnock and awesome. Like, I think that was pretty much basically. And, you know, and But I don't think, now that I'm thinking about it, um, I don't think I called the state one way or another for Biden. Oh, well, there you go. And so you, you had a recent piece. And let's let's start with this. because We're going to talk about all things Georgia today. But you had a recent piece in The Intercept, a great, great one called uh, the headline, Democratic small donors have found a new hole to throw money into. Uh, the, the new hole is the campaign of Marcus Flowers, who has raised uh, $10 million and counting. Uh, to take on uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So right now, as we speak, there are uh, 14 U.S. House representatives from the state of Georgia. There are eight Republicans, six Democrats. So how many of those are going to be competitive? How many of those 14 races are going to be competitive in November? Essentially zero. None of them. None of them are competitive. Zero. Yes. 
So elections with zero competitive races. So they, Georgia had redrawn its districts multiple times. Like if, if I recall correctly, didn't they redraw in the middle of the 2010s to make sure, because as, as their kind of gerrymander went stale? Yeah, they, they started to push things around in, uh, I want to say, 2016. Most of that was at the, at the local level, at the state house and the state senate uh, seats. There really wasn't saving six after uh you know, after <laughs> sort of Trump screwed up the politics of the state, mm-hmm. but uh, here we are. And that, that was the uh, that's that was the one that Ossoff ran. That would in, be the one that Ossoff ran. Lucy, Lucy McBath won. Yeah. in 2018. Correct. So that was six, and so they they redrew uh, six and seven together, and mashing Carolyn Bordeaux, a Democrat, with with Lucy McBath, another Democrat. Lucy McBath ended up winning that primary, and so she's. You, you were telling me earlier she's she's probably going to win, whereas the six uh, is probably going Republican. It's a huge edge there, which means yep. we'll go from eight Republicans and six Democrats to nine Republicans and five Democrats. Five Democrats, that is correct. Without anybody casting a vote to say that that's the that's outcome that they want. Correct. Like we're going to have not, like nine and five in a state that is almost exactly 50-50 Republican and Democrat. Right. And Republicans only need to flip what three to win the house. Yeah. And so there's one right there. Right. Uh, and so yep. $10 million getting thrown at Marcus flowers, uh, taking on Marjorie Taylor green. How's that race looking? I like the voters. I've talked to him. Um, I, <laughs> and let's be frank, like Marjorie Taylor green elicits profanity. Like, like it's, she's just surrounded by people who are swearing under her breath, uh, under their breath because she's that bad. And she's going to win that by, a minimum of 10 points. I think 20 is more likely. So you asked, I thought, some really good questions of of Marcus Flowers in your your interview. Basically, what are you doing? Like what? And it it reminded me of, let's say, Amy McGrath, the the candidate that took on uh, Mitch McConnell. And actually, you see this on the Republican side, the the candidate who ran against AOC in, in the Bronx, the Republican who ran against Ilhan Omar, you know, because these are such lightning rod candidates, people on the other side are willing to give money, even though you could tell them, hey, you're, you're, this Republican does not have a shot in the Bronx right. against AOC. Like, whatever you think of her, she's, she's going to win the general election there. Whatever you think of Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's going to win her general election. So what did Marcus Flowers tell you when, when you asked, why are you, why are you raising and spending so much money? So part of what he said was that this was like, I mean, I think he's perfectly aware that he is he is benefiting from the lightning rod that is Marjorie Taylor Greene in his fundraising. We talked about whether or not at the end of the day, win or lose, there would be something left in that district that would be helpful to Democrats. And he said he was putting money into his ground game and that he was building infrastructure and that he was energizing the base that may drive some turnout in a district where a little extra turnout may be what everybody else needs. That's his argument. Right. Help Raphael Warnock in the general election, something like that. Right. Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams. Uh, By any reasonable measure, whatever happens in November is likely to be close. There's Nobody's running away with it because you can't. There just aren't enough swing voters. I suppose the problem here is that he's not going to win. And um, as I'm talking to the folks who are in the district, like the district leaders, it is completely clear to me that they're they're energized, but they're not attributing that to Marcus, mm-hmm. you know, Marcus Flowers exactly. They're seeing sort of like this marginal edge value. And so where where is he spending that? $10 million. He, he told you he was spending it on the ground game, but that doesn't seem to really. Yeah, it was like, no, it's not. It's uh, it's money being spent basically on the internet to make more money. Right. It is a campaign consultants full employment act mm-hmm. where seven out of every $10 is being plowed back into advertising. Like we're not raising money to win the election. You're raising money to put $7 million into the coffers of Google and Microsoft to some degree and Facebook. And most of that is probably out of state, I would suspect, or out particularly out of district. 
it is a huge problem right now across the board. Warnock's got it. Abrams has got it. To some degree, Kemp has got it. And so does, like, Walker. Like, if you look at the train wreck that is Herschel Walker's campaign as uh, a mechanism for raising MAGA money with no other, no other goal in sight, it is successful. Somewhat related to this, a, a candidate told me recently that, you, you know how everybody's been getting text messages now saying like, hey, yeah. can you please donate to me? You, 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 you only text people out of your district because you don't want to annoy them by hitting them up for these $10, $20 uh, you know, contributions. But what, what he said is that the, the margins on that are minuscule. So if, if, you're, if you're spending you know, $950, uh, for every $950 you spend, you might bring in $1,000. Yeah. Uh, and so the question then, well, why, why do it? And it's actually be for the reporting number. Well, A, to you know, pad the pockets of, of the consultants, the, the fundraising consultants, but for the number. So if you spend $95,000 and you bring in $100,000, you actually only netted $5,000. But when you report to the public how much money you've raised for, the, for that month, that there's a hundred thousand dollar number there. It's only when a reporter like yourself looks into it, said, "Oh, wait a minute!" But you spent all of this already, yeah. not doing anything related to campaigning. But it allows you to look like a more intimidating candidate to the press, to your opponents, maybe to the you know to uh, you know to newspapers to get to garner coverage. So is is that are we kind of seeing that on steroids in the in the flowers race there? Very much so. It's not just the flowers race, but yes, like flowers is just the biggest and possibly the worst example in, in America right now, but it's not the only one here. That's, that's what's going on. Like Georgia is where political consultants come to go and make enough money to go do other things. This is a cash grab for a bunch of people who live in DC. And frankly, the folks on the ground here are pretty disgusted by it. Mm-hmm. And when I say on the ground, I'm talking about like the DeKalb County Democratic Party. Let's start with that. Like, it's where I live. I live on the east side of Atlanta. It is sort of urban ish, majority black, votes 75, 80% Democrat, is well organized now since the 2016 thing like made everybody freak out. And suddenly you've got meetings with 200 people in them. Tremendous local network of canvassers and activists who've been very engaged and frankly have been fixing the politics of this this county because of their engagement for the last six years. And, you know, suddenly you've got bros from California showing up, like expecting to be, like to call shots Mm -hmm. and making like $150,000 while the local guys are pulling down 15 an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like that. We see that. Right. <laughs> it's not invisible at this point. And I think it is one of the things that has dampened enthusiasm. Talk a little bit about that. How, how has it, how do, you, how do you see that manifesting? So some of it's little things. Like I was writing a column about, like in the local press, about, like I write for Decaturish. Please read Decaturish. It's amazing. Decatur is a town in DeKalb County. So I was writing a column about the Abrams race, the Abrams-Kemp race. Um, I was not being particularly generous to Abrams right now because I, I don't think she, her, I don't think she's running a good race. And I get a phone call from like one of their media people, and it's a Maryland phone number. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at it like, all right, so you're in D.C. No, 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 I'm in Decatur. And I'm like, and then I go Google her and she runs a communications consultancy in Washington and is all over everywhere. And I'm realizing, okay, so she got off a plane and she's going to get on a plane in, you know, on November 10th. She has no loyalty to the truth with me as she is speaking to me because there's never going to be a relationship there. The idea that their media guys they can't hire folks from Georgia to talk to people like me is just, it's just what, like, I mean, sure. Okay. This is how things work, but it shouldn't be. And we see it. And who's to blame for that? So I, I mean, ultimately you have to hold the, the candidate responsible. 
But there's like, I mean, and, and partly though, I'm just going to say it like, because so much money gets raised to fight in Georgia, because Georgia appears to be the linchpin of democracy right now. Like the dynamics of American politics create these conditions. Mm -hmm. And frankly, this is why Donald Trump has an audience. And so like you were saying, Stacey Abrams, who ran a very close race last time is looking like it's not going to be so close this time. What, what went wrong? Well, first, I'm not sure. I mean, look, the poll, she's down by three in the polls. Okay. Like that's what it is. She's down by three in the polls. I think part of this is Republican ticket sweaters who very much don't like Herschel Walker, but don't want to give up their Republican credentials. <laughs> and they look at Kemp, who got, who's in this sort of soft war with Donald Trump over the 2020 election and say, all right, I'm, I'm going to vote for, for Warnock. I have to. Walker is insane. But I, but, but for real though, I'm still a Republican and Kemp is a, an anti-Trump Republican. And so I'm going to vote for Kemp too. Because there's no, basically nobody who's doing this in reverse. Like, I will buy a beer for the first person who will legitimately tell me that they are an Abrams uh, Walker right. voter. And if that is the case, there I don't see how much Abrams could do to win those voters over. Like, if you're really talking about old school Republicans who are just who are just like, look, Herschel Walker is just a bridge too far for me, but I'm still a Republican. It's, it's really hard to see how Abrams peels those away. So I think there were ways, like, and this is sort of the crux of my, my criticism right now. The problem is a lot of them require some very difficult kinds of public messaging, like really pointed, like, you're down by three. Like, your job is to attack. Like and to be like the nature of American politics right now, like we're expecting you know, you know punches to the face effectively, like rhetorically. Some of this is because the Warnock uh, Walker race is drowning everything out. Hmm. Uh, when you turn on the television right now, you cannot escape the advertising. Some of this is outside money. Like I think there's there's been a huge ad buy by Carl Rove's guys to say if you care about inflation you need to vote for for Walker because inflation is is bad and hey Warnock voted for checks for people who are in jail like the like the bomber in Boston. And what are Warnock's ads? Uh, Warnock's ads and he's actually starting to sign his name on some of this stuff, so it's not outside money. Um, have been basically. Walker is a liar and Walker is insane. Mm -hmm. Walker is violent. Walker can't count his kids. Walker threatened to kill his wife. Walker's uh, not like he lies about like charitable stuff. Uh, just like lies, 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 lies. Walker cannot be trusted. I, I think they're penetrating. Walker's response to that seems to have been, hey, we're not supposed to be a, a pastor what happened to, you know, grace and forgiveness and redemption? Uh, how is that? How's that working? There's a reason why there's a 10 point gap between Abrams and, and Warnock in the polls. And that's the measure of how many people are actually buying that line. I mean, look, the question everybody in the country's got is why would anybody vote for Herschel Walker knowing what we know now? Never mind what everybody else in the country, like, Georgia, where you're inundated with this stuff, why would anybody vote for him? And the answer is actually pretty simple. He, like, his stupidity is a feature, not a bug. He is a guaranteed, I will push the R button when it lights up mm -hmm. senator who will not innovate because he's not smart enough. Like, he may do crazy, stupid things. He may say crazy and stupid things, but he is the most reliable Republican vote that we could possibly have. And that's a good thing. And I'll vote for him. That's it. Like that's all, they don't care about any of this stuff. All the moral questions, Republicans are not moral, moral actors when it comes to voting. It's simply a matter of interest. 
which I could even I could defend, you know, from a kind of moral perspective. In other words, you know, you're voting for to take their side of this question. You're voting for a a party and a policy rather than rather than endorsing kind of the character of of a person. If you know, from their perspective, if he goes in and and presses the R button, and I think you know, Democrats in a, a lot of races. They're voting for the Democrat, and they're, vo- they're voting for Democratic policy. That person's going to go in, and they're going to press press that button. And they don't want to, you know, they're, they're not going to, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't switch and vote for Herschel Walker because some damaging information came out about Warnock. Mo- the the vast majority of them wouldn't. But I'm curious how what what your guess is of what percentage of Republicans that is, and how many people are there still in our politics who are still taking character into account uh, when they. Are making these decisions used to be huge 70s 80s like you, you would you'd lose by 30 40 points in in a race like yeah. this if you're herschel walker yep. that i'm curious where we're at now on that so my best guess is it's like the, the that measure is the gap between abrams and about five to ten five to ten i think that's who's left and here's where i'm going with this so during the primaries and this is important like the Republicans had the highest primary turnout this year, basically ever. Both on, like, uh, I mean, both. So did the Democrats. Like, voters are activated. I think the the era of relatively low turnout primaries and general elections in Georgia is over. Too much money's been spent getting people registered to vote and like targeting them. Herschel Walker won something over eight hundred thousand primary votes. It was about 60-70% of the of the primary electorate. And it's twice as many as anybody else in modern history has won in a primary, contested or not, in Georgia for a Senate race. That's gonna be about half, maybe a little less than half, of the Republican voters who turn out for the general election. Which is to say. Half of Republican voters are perfectly prepared to pick crazy. And honestly, it's because I think that they're so disenchanted with actual politics that putting a thumb in the eye of the political machine, even if they lose, is a better and proper expression of their politics than it is winning and trying to govern well. Speaking of governing well, how's the Georgia war over actual voting and counting the votes going? So the, the one question right now is going to be about challenges to voter registration. Local judges and local election boards are doing a pretty good job right now of knocking those challenges down. Virtually all of them are being thrown out. Uh, but there is a deliberate and concerted effort by like conservative, hard right, third party actors it's not the state GOP. It's groups like True the Vote out of Texas. And when I look at who's staffing that stuff here, it's MAGA. It's the worst kind of grifter alt-right. But they're showing up to elections boards all over the state. And it's just rolling dice. They're looking for election boards with a, a MAGA majority on it who, who are willing to subvert the law. To his credit, Brian Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, is doing a very good job, and so is his staff, in beating back the, the most spurious of these, these claims that people are being registered properly. Like, I hate to say it, like, as a Democrat, but he's doing a good job, <laughs> um, and he's going to get reelected, probably. Like, as much as I like B. Gwen. I have known B. Gwen for 10 years. I knew her since before she was elected to public office. She's awesome. She is as strong an advocate for voting rights as any person you're going to find in this state, including Stacey Abrams. And she's probably going to lose by five. And what about the state legislature? Because like you said, this is a 50-50 state now, but they've been gerrymandering the heck out of it. Yeah, and it's been gerrymandered and for a long time. Although, you know, I'm like, I would, this is the sort of thing I would argue with Gabriel Sterling about on Facebook before he became famous. There's a concentration of Democratic voters and Black voters in, you know, urban areas, Atlanta, but also Columbus and Macon and Savannah. 
And so it makes it more difficult to draw lines that will like get to where you're supposed to be. The problem is like, like it's kind of weak sauce. Like that's the argument on the right. This state's going to go really close to 50, 50 up and down the chain. It's going to be 52, 48 and in either direction. I can't actually say what it is right now. The state Senate has a 60% majority that they're two votes away from a constitutional supermajority, um, which does not in any real way reflect the actual politics of this state. The state House, uh, Republicans, like the House has got 180 seats, the Republicans have a 12-vote advantage. They're going to have a 12-vote advantage, give or take one seat on, on November 10th. And it's, you know... Some of this is gerrymandering. Some of this is like the way voters are concentrated in certain parts of the state. It's extremely difficult to overcome that in Georgia. Like, it's not good. Like, Democrats are going to need a three or four point voting advantage statewide in order to start looking at flipping its, its local houses. Never mind Congress. Is that three or four point advantage in the cards as the population of the Atlanta metro area continues? blowing up or does it have a an effect where it as the city gets bigger and the suburbs get bigger you you end up transforming some people into into republicans in the exurbs or something so there's been a a well-documented half point drift per year in voting patterns partisan voting patterns in georgia for the last probably 15 years and it is almost entirely about people moving into the state and having kids and those kids being uh, non-white or more likely to be gay. Part of this is, I mean, Atlanta attracts, 70, Metro Atlanta attracts 75,000 new people a year and most of them are coming from blue states. Yeah, eventually they get there. But if you're at minus three right now, like with all considerations of crazy people at the top of the ticket aside, if you're at minus three right now and you need to get to plus three in order to flip the local legislature, well, that's 12 years. And 12 years is a long time. It sure is. The crazy thing is that Republicans, by and large, are making almost no real effort to attract a new constituency. Latino outreach is awful. It's not terrible. It's not, it's not, it exists. I see it. Like, and I'm going to, I hear the howling of some Latino conservative political activists that are, my phone's going to light up as soon as they hear that. <laughs> but Democrats are bad at it too. Let me just say that. Like, Democrats are bad at it too. Nobody is, like, the Democratic Party is about black and white and everybody else is, uh, is an afterthought. And it's a problem. They talk a game about Latino act, outreach, but I haven't. Like you talk to the folks on the ground, and it's really mediocre. But there's no uh, there's no effort being made by no not enough for the Republican Party to arrest its demographic drift, and they know that. And in the meanwhile, like on their hard right, they've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like last week. At a rally, I think it was like a couple of days ago, she's openly spouting replacement theory, hmm. like where she says immigrants are coming to replace you in your schools and your jobs. Uh, you know, rather than try to co-opt immigrants, they're running against them. And I live in a metro area where one out of six people were born outside of the United States. Yeah, eventually it flips, but it's we're not there yet. It's going to take another 12 years. So last question, any, any predictions in the uh, Warnock-Walker race put you down on the record here? Okay, so what I want to do is give you confidence, bands. Like, because putting down a number is dumb. I think uh, Warnock wins this three times out of four, mm -hmm. which is to say I am saying there's a one in four chance that Walker wins this. And it may have everything to do with what happens in the last week of the campaign, the, uh, because Republicans tend to 
vote day of election because they can because they live in places where they're not going to face a four-hour line to go vote. Right. And so if Warnock or Walker says or does something stupid three days before election day, that may affect Republican turnout. And it really is the Walker-Warnock thing that's going to drive that. It's less so Abrams and Kemp. So three out of four Warnock wins. I think there's a one in 10 chance that he wins by as much as six points. I think Abrams would be lucky right now to take Kemp to a runoff. I think that's possible. I think it is plausible because I think there's a three-point libertarian vote out there. Might be two, but two or three-point libertarian vote out there. If she takes him to a uh, a runoff, she probably loses the runoff because Walker isn't going to be driving Democratic opponent turnout. Is there a a libertarian vote is in the uh, Senate race, or is that just straight up? Uh, no, there's there's a libertarian running in the Senate. He's worth maybe one percent. So you could theoretically have a runoff there if it was close enough. You could. Oh, it's possible. Like I, I don't want to discount it, but I think it's a one in twenty thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, George, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it as always. Not a problem. Happy to help. That was George Cheedy, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.